bring you greetings from Sayersville, Kentucky. It's on the other side of the tug. Uh, and uh, we love you all. We pray regularly for Risen King. Um, I love your pastor. Uh, I love Peter. When we organized the network, I think the first time I met him was in Jason's office at Randolph Street. And I had knew every other pastor, and I thought, who is this guy in West Virginia with this weird accent uh, wanting to be part of an Appalachian network? And come to find out, uh, he's actually from here, and uh, our hearts were knit together, and he became not just a fellow partner in the gospel, but a dear brother and a very, very dear friend, and... Um, I appreciate his ministry, his family, the way you love him, care for him. Uh, there's no one other than the brothers in the network that I would rather almost get kicked out of a nine marks weekender with than, than those guys. Um, and they probably thought, who are these crazy people up here in Washington, D.C.? And uh, we, we had a wonderful time together and at T4G and other other areas. When he called me and, and invited me to preach, number one, I am terrible at scheduling. So I had about three different dates down for when I was going to Risen King. And uh, thankfully, this one worked out. It happens to be Reformation Sunday. And the first time you preach at a church, it's kind of strange sometimes. It's, it's different. So I asked him, I said, what, do you, what, what should I wear? And a suit, tie, what should I wear? It being Reformation Sunday, I thought about coming as a 16th century German monk. It would have fit, but uh, um, he, he assured me that probably would be overdressed for the occasion. And one more thing, I don't know what our jobs in heaven will be when we get there, but I have put in a request before I arrive that if they serve coffee at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that Peter be the one that gets to make it. Amen? Amen? All right? So... Um, with that said, <laughs> let me invite you to take God's Word. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 21. Um, I'm going to hit some high spots in chapter 21, camp out in one verse in chapter 22, and then conclude with about half the chapter in chapter 23. So 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 21. Now, while you're turning there, um, I've got a confession that one of the things my family and I love, one of the seasons we love is the Christmas season. We love everything about it. We love the busy schedules. We love the hectic uh, nature of the season. But we also enjoy uh, reading Christmas books, watching all of the classics. And one of the classics that we always love watching is The Grinch. Uh, we read the book, we watch the cartoons, we watch the Jim Carrey movie over and over and over and over again. And it's the story of how a Grinch tried to steal Christmas. He thought that he could steal the trees, he could steal the ribbons, he could steal the bows, he could steal the presents from all the Who's down in Whoville. And by doing that, he could keep Christmas from coming. And there's that part where... The Grinch steals everything in Whoville. He takes it up to Mount Crumpet to dump it. And he hears something. 
On Christmas morning, he hears all the who's down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. Well, the story we're going to read about this morning is the story in the Old Testament that reminds me of the Grinch. Because it was an attempt, an attempt not by a Grinch, but by a grandmother to stop the very first Christmas from coming. She did not steal the ribbons, the bows, the trees, or even the roast beef. But she tried to stop the first Christmas from coming by destroying the line of David. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made his people a promise. And the promise was this, that there is going to come a son from the line of David who is going to rule and reign over his people. That God, through the rule of one of David's sons, would usher in peace and give them security. And he would restore that which Adam caused in the Garden of Eden. And as long as a descendant of David was alive and ruled and reigned on the throne in Judah, in Jerusalem, the people of God had hope. They could trust in that. They could long for that day. In fact, I imagine that every time that one of David's descendants would ascend the throne, they would anoint them king, place the crown on their heads, anoint them with oil, and they would cry out the words of the second psalm, Today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Maybe hope would feel in the heart of an Israelite as they would wonder and think aloud, Is this the one? Is this not just a son of David, but is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah who is going to rule and reign over his people? Their expectation, their hope, and their confidence is tied to that son of David who will rule and reign over them. Which is what makes the events in 2 Chronicles 21, 22, and 23 so intriguing. I'll give you a quick update. It's about 100 years after the death of David that one of his descendants, Jehoshaphat, who was the fifth king from David, rules over Judah. Now, he was a very godly king, and he died after 25 years of rule. His son, Jehoram, began to reign over Judah. Now, Jehoram was not like his father. As a matter of fact, he is one of the most power-hungry, vicious kings in all of the Old Testament. In fact, when you look in 2 Chronicles 21, verse 4, look what his first act as king is. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. Now, what does he do? The first thing that Jehoram does when he becomes king is he secures his job. He kills all of his brothers, the descendants of David. He even kills his nephews, the princes of David. So that instead of many descendants of David being one who could rightfully ascend the throne, 
Only his line is left. Now, one might wonder, why is Jehoram so wicked? Well, you do not have to look far. Because Jehoram was married to a woman named Athaliah. In fact, the Bible says in verse 5 that Jehoram was 32 years old when he, began, when he became king. And he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. Now watch this. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Here Jehoram is married to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Her name is Athaliah. And I can tell you this, she was a chip off the old block. <laughs> and just as Jezebel stirred up the evil that was inside of Ahab, so Athaliah stirs up the evil that was in her husband, Jehoram. She's wicked. She's evil. And because of this, God sends Jehoram a letter through the prophet Elijah. And he says to them basically this, you're going to be destroyed. God's going to strike you with a bowel disease. Uh, the, your people's going to be taken away. And your line is going to be very much hurt by your enemies. Now, I want you to notice verse 7. Verse 7 says this, that yet, that is in spite of his evil deeds, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So why does God not just wipe out Jehoram and his household? Because God had made a promise to David. And here we see the beauty of God's faithfulness, even when man appears very much to be unfaithful. God will not destroy Jehoram because to destroy Jehoram and his family would be to destroy the line of David because of what Jehoram had done. So what happens? Well, God stirs up the Philistines and God stirs up the enemies of Judah and they come in and they destroy the land. And they kill even more people of the house of David. And God strikes Jehoram with a terrible bowel disease. For two years he lived and his bowels literally gushed out of his body. And finally when he dies, there is no celebration. There is no, there is no lighting of fire for the king. When he dies, they just bury him. And the Bible makes this sad statement about him in 2 Chronicles 21 and verse 20. That they, um, it says he parted, he departed with no one's regret. How sad to come to the end of your life and die and nobody cares. That's what happened with Jehoram. And so he dies and they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the king. So here we have Jehoram. He's dead. Now, the Bible in 2 Chronicles 22 speaks about Jehoram's son, Ahaziah, and Ahaziah ascends the throne. He's 22 when he begins to reign, and he is just like his father. He walks in the ways of Israel, the kings of the north, and the reason is his mother, Athaliah, is his counselor. She is the power behind the throne, but now Ahaziah only 
is allowed to reign for one year. He goes down to Ramoth Gilead and he is assassinated by Jehu. And when news comes back that Ahaziah has been killed, the Bible says in verse 9 that he met the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers who attended Ahaziah and he killed them. At the end of verse 9, it says, And the house of Ahaziah had no one able to rule the kingdom. Now, here's what this means. It means that when Ahaziah dies, he's got children. They're just not old enough to rule, and they're not old enough to reign yet. So follow the the line of Scripture. You have Jehoshaphat. You have Jehoram. um, You have Ahaziah. And now Ahaziah is dead, and the line of David is getting pretty thin. And so with the Ahaziah's death, Athaliah does something that is unthinkable. Look at verse 10, and this is where we'll camp out for just a minute. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. What does this mean? This means that when she hears that her son has been murdered by Jehu, been slain as an act of God's judgment upon his house, her first act is to kill all her grandchildren. Now, you talk about interesting when they say, let's go visit granny, right? She would be everyone's favorite, but she's evil. She's wicked, and she wants to secure the throne now for herself. Now, what does this mean? Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think back and put yourself in 2 Chronicles 22. You're, 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 you are one of the tribes of Judah, and you're in Jerusalem, and you hear that Ahaziah has died, and you hear that Athaliah has destroyed all the royal family and all the lineage of the house of David. What do you think? Well, immediately I want to say, how could a grandmother do that to her grandchildren? But I promise you, that's not what the children of Israel were thinking in that day and time. Here's what they were thinking. How could God allow this? How could God allow the seed of David to be exterminated? How could there be no one who descended from David alive? How could God not protect his promise? Has God failed to protect his promise to the nation? Has God failed to protect his promise to David? Furthermore, if God has failed to keep his promise to David and his promise to the nation, how do I know that God will keep any promise that he has also made to me? Do you see how this could create a a crisis moment for the people of God? Thus we have to ask, what becomes of our hope when it appears that God has promised more than he is able to deliver? What becomes of our hope when it appears to us that God, although he can't, but it appears that he has lied? What becomes of our hope when all seems dark? 
This passage of Scripture will teach us, I think, wonderful lessons on hope and faithfulness and trust and the sovereign acts and will of God. But here's what we have to resolve. We have to understand that retaining hope in the midst of doubt, difficulty, and disappointment requires from you and me an unyielding trust in the promise and the character of God. When all is dark and all you have is God's promise and God's character, that must be enough. And so I want to show you how an unyielding trust in God's hope can fuel your hope when all seems dark. What do you need to do? Well, first, you need to trust God when present circumstances bring doubt. The people of Israel here are, or the people of Judah here are at a crossroads. What are they going to do? If you are an average citizen in the nation, you have no idea what's going on. All you know is that the house of David has been destroyed. And I can imagine that doubt will creep into their minds. It appears in verse 10 that all the royal family of the house of Judah has been killed. There is no remnant left, the newspaper reports in Jerusalem times. They're gone. They have been destroyed. Let me ask you something. What should a, a descendant of Abraham have done at this moment? Should you have panicked? Should you have thrown your hands up in despair? Should you have said, well, that's the end of the seed. That's the end of the line. <laughs> They're all dead. You read Israel's history and you're working through the book of Genesis. And do you know what you're going to learn? The nation itself has been here before. Where it looks like the seed is dead and there is no hope. You're in what? Chapter 16, chapter 17 of Genesis going through the book of Genesis. You're getting real close to chapter 22. When you get to chapter 22, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to preview the sermon before it arrives. God had promised Abraham a seed. That seed would be Isaac. And God in, in Genesis 22 is going to command Abraham to do the most unthinkable thing when Isaac is born. Here's what he's going to command him to do. Take Isaac up to a mountain and offer him there as a sacrifice to me. Now, I grew up in church all the time where we felt sorry for Abraham when they got to Mount Moriah. They got to Mount Moriah, they painted a picture of Abraham so sad and gloomy and, and just very reluctantly wanting to take Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice him there to God. I think we've been wrong in that. Because the Bible in the book of Hebrews tells us something about Abraham. Abraham had resurrecting faith. He had faith in the resurrection. Thus, Abraham believed so strongly. That what God had promised, that if he had offered up Isaac on the altar, he believed that God would raise him from the dead. That's how much he believed God. That's why when Abraham, before they go up, he says to the men, stay here. The lad and I, we're going to go up there and worship and we will come back again. He believed that God, if it took God, 
raising the dead to fulfill his promise, he would do it. Now listen, you and I will pass through places in our life that it will look as if all the promises of God has failed us. And we must have that dogmatic faith that says, even though I don't understand what's going on, I believe God during these dark times. You see, when circumstances cause doubt, it is crucial that we trust in God's promise and his character. But there's something else. It's equally important that we remain faithful to God when present circumstances bring disappointment. I want to ask you something. Have you ever been disappointed with God's will in your life? You pray to prayer. You need the answer to be yes. And the answer is no. You pray for healing and healing doesn't come. You pray for a job promotion and you get laid off. And you feel disappointed. Here, the nation has all of their hope in this one line, David's line. And now they appear to be gone. Disappointment sets in. And do you know that disappointment oftentimes can lead to temptation? Listen to me. What's the greatest temptation that Judah faces here in verse 10? The greatest temptation that Judah faces here in verse 10 is that they forsake the God of their fathers and they go after the bells of the world and they walk in the footsteps of Ahab and they forsake their faithfulness to God. They no longer go to the temple and offer up their sacrifices. They no longer pray. They, they no longer observe the day of atonement. They no longer observe what is happening at the temple. They forsake it all because after all, what's the use? I'm disappointed. Disappointments in your life can oftentimes lead to temptation. Disappointed in your marriage. You don't feel like you're getting the affection and the attention that you, that you need and that you deserve. And so what happens? It opens the door to temptation and you feel like you have earned the right then to flirt with somebody else at work or you earn the right to surf the internet and look at pornography. Disappointed with the job. You show up and do your job and you work hard and you work as unto the Lord. But when the time comes for promotion... The person who causes all the strife in, in the office is the one who gets the promotion and the pay raise and, and the bump in salary. And there you are. You're disappointed. There's a temptation then to say, you know what? What's the use? I'm not even going to try. I, I'm just going to show up and I'm going to quite quit as the newspapers talk about these days. What about with sickness? You've been diagnosed with cancer or you've been diagnosed with a disease and you pray that it will be cured. You pray that it will go into remission, but it doesn't. It continues to progress. You've got a parent with Alzheimer's and you would just like for them to remember your name one more time, but it doesn't happen. And so you get discouraged and you get disappointed. And so the temptation comes in to say, what's the use? What's the use? Why go to church? Why pray? Why read your Bible? It, it, it doesn't help when all seems to be dark. That's the temptation that you face when you're disappointed. 
But there's a resolution you need to make. And that is you're going to be faithful even when you're doubtful. Be faithful even when you are doubtful. Again, how would Judah prove that they still believed and trust in God? We'll see it in a little bit. They would continue to go to the temple. They would continue to offer their sacrifices. They would continue to worship God as he prescribed it in the Old Testament and in the law. Do you know that there are many people probably who used to attend Risen King, who used to sit in the seat you're sitting in, who they're not here today because there was some disappointment that arose in their life and they did not resolve that I'm going to be faithful even though I am doubtful. I've seen times when disappointment causes people to leave a church. They're disappointed in the pastor, so they leave. They're disappointed in the members, so they leave. I've seen people who were disappointed in God because their spouse dies after they prayed that God would raise them back up from a sickness. And, and even though they, they prayed and they trusted during that difficult time, they did not trust through that difficult time. January the 8th, 1956, um, Jim Elliott and some other missionaries were murdered by the Aka Indians, those who they were attempting to get the gospel to. That created a missionary movement in the United States and throughout the world, and even today their story still gives people great hope. I mean, who hasn't heard or quoted Jim Elliott? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I mean, it, it is such an inspiration in reading his diary. But after their death, Elizabeth Elliott spoke about how she got through it, how she continued to get through it. How do you, how do you, how do you survive that? How do you continue to be faithful when your husband, in an attempt to get the gospel to a people, is brutally murdered by the people he was trying to get the gospel to? She popularized an old poem. And that poem was simply this, do the next thing. That became her motto. When you read her, her book and you read her articles that she wrote, she said that she had so much to do that she just did the next thing. She said after his death, she said she changed diapers, taught liter literacy classes, and translated scripture. Because she knew if she didn't do anything, she would just continue to sink and to sink and to sink into despair. 2021, Peter knows about this. I've shared it with him and shared it with the pastors of, of our network. Um, our church went through a dark period unlike any I have seen for a small congregation of people. And in 2021, um, our church, or actually 2022, our church um, experienced either directly with membership or immediate family of members. I preached over 50 funerals one year. In one year. It seemed as if every single week, either a member had died or a member's mother or father died or a member's brother or sister died, uh, or a member's son or daughter died. And for an entire year, it was almost every week, fresh wounds are, are being opened and such grief and sorrow uh, being expressed in our members' hearts. And I encouraged them, just keep doing the next thing. Keep doing the next thing. And you know what was one of the most difficult things for them to do during this entire time? It was to come to church and sing. It was hard. 
And it, it wasn't that they, they were mad at God. It wasn't that they were upset at God. But, but they would come in and, and it was difficult for them to, to sing. And slowly I would watch one person go through a couple of weeks. And they would, they would, they would mouth the words. And then they would start to sing. And they would continue to just keep doing what they were supposed to do. Until eventually they would, they would be able to, to sing with true joy. One, one lady whose brother had, had died uh, said to me one Sunday morning after we sang, Whatever my God ordains is right. She came up to me after the service with tears in her eyes and she said, You know, we've sung that song so many times before, but I get it now. I get it now. There are some times when you have to sing that song through gritted teeth and a raised hand. <laughs> Why? Because it is hard when we are disappointed in life. So what do you do? How, what is there that can anchor us when it seems that God has failed? Now, you all know that I was just setting you up. That's my introduction, okay? Peter told me to preach for an hour, hour and a half, 25-minute introduction. All right. <laughs> Verse 10. <laughs> yeah. Verse 10, they're all dead. All right? Disappointment. Doubt creeps in. But here's something else you need to know. That a future unveiling of our king will turn doubt and disappointments into delight. A future unveiling of the king will turn doubt and disappointment into into delight. Listen to me. There is something you need to know about your life when you face difficulty and you face doubtful situations. And it is this. You don't know what God is doing behind the scenes. I believe it was Piper who said God is doing 10 million things right now behind the scenes. And you might only be aware of two or three of them. Now, you're an average Israelite. You're an average uh, a citizen in Judah. You just hear that the house of David has been destroyed. But look at verse 11. But my church has a plaque for me in my office. And it says, our pastor's favorite word in the Bible is but. <laughs> Ask him why. Here's one of those instances. Terrible news. Bad news. David's seed has been wiped out. But, but what? But Jehoshabiath, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus Jehoshabiath, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, because she was a sister to Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that he so that she did not put him to death and he remained with them 6 years hidden in the house of God while Athaliah reigned over the land 6 years Athaliah reigns over the land 6 years it seems as if darkness has prevailed. You know, six years is a long time. Think back to what? 2017. What were you doing in 2000 and, or 2017? Could you imagine? 
2017 till now, if all you ever believed about God seemed to have crumbled before your very eyes, for six years they lived with Athaliah reigning. But they did not know what was going on behind the scenes. Jehoshabiath, uh, Second Kings calls her uh, Jehoshaphat. She takes, she takes Joash before Athaliah can kill all of her grandchildren. And she steals him away, takes his nurse. And because she is married to Jehoiada, the priest, she has access to the inner chambers of the temple. And she takes Joash and the nurse and hides them away into the inner chamber of the temple. And guess what? For six years, while everybody thinks that David's line has been destroyed... There in a little hidden place in the temple, God is still preserving and protecting and fulfilling the promise that he made to David and only a handful of people knew about it. I want to ask you something. Did God panic during those six years of Athaliah's reign? Did God fret? Did God say, oops? Absolutely not. He knew exactly what he was doing. And here's what I've learned in life. I've learned that my doubts and my disappointments are often bound together with my ignorance of what God is doing behind the scenes. I don't always know what is happening in life. I don't always know why it is happening in life. I don't even know how it is happening in life sometimes. But here's what I do know. I do know who is working in life. And I do know that the Bible has promised me that he works all things together for my good. And he works all things together for his glory. And therefore, I can trust in those dark moments. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.10 that he works all things after the counsel, get this, of his will. I have never one time been summoned to heaven for an emergency meeting of the Godhead. (laughs) It said, you know what? We need some help in this area. No, we read it in our call to worship. Who has been his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? No, it is from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, our wise, holy, infinite, sovereign God is working behind the scenes even when we are not aware of it. He's working. And thus, when the king is revealed, we'll be thankful we trusted God. Look in chapter 23. Verses 1 through 11. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada took courage and entered into the covenant with the commanders of hundreds. Azariah, the son of Jehoram. Ishmael, the son of Jehonan. Azariah, the son of Obed. Messiah, the son of Adiah. And Elashaphat, the son of Zichri. And they went about through Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah. And the heads of fathers of fathers' houses of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. And all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. But Jehoiada said to them, I love this, Behold, the king's son, let him reign as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. 
This is the thing that you shall do. Of you priests and Levites who come off duty on the Sabbath, one-third shall be gatekeepers. And one-third shall be at the king's house. And one-third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy. But all the people shall keep the charge of the Lord. The Levites shall surround the king. You talk about a secret service. The Levites shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever enters the house shall be put to death. Be, be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. And the Levites and all Judah did to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath. For Jehoiada the priest did not dismiss the divisions. And Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains the spears and the large uh, and small shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. And he said, all the people as a guard for the king, every man with the weapons in his hand from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house. And watch this. Then they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him. And they said, long live the king. What a day. Here, God is proving. Here, God is showing to his people. I have been faithful through it all. Could you imagine when they call the Levites to come to Jerusalem and they get to the temple and they take them in that hidden place and they walk in there and there's Joash. And Jehoiada says, that's the king's son. Could you imagine the joy and the hope that filled their heart. That for six years they've endured Athaliah's reign. And they've wondered, oh, how could I ever doubt God's faithfulness? Or how could I ever doubt what God was doing? Here God is being faithful to what he has promised to us. Have you ever done that with God? God answers a prayer or, or you see God's faithfulness displayed. And you, you almost chasten yourself. And you think, how could I ever have gotten in a spot to where I wondered about God's Goodness or God's faithfulness to me. How could that ever happen to me? Well, just know this. That the king, when he is revealed, you'll be thankful that you were faithful. Do you notice that it speaks about the Levites who were coming off duty and who were going on duty, who was coming off duty, who was going on duty? Do you know what that means? That during those six years, do you know what those priests did? They showed up and they were faithful. They showed up and they were faithful. And now it's being rewarded. They're going to protect the king and watch for the king. And thus, when the king is revealed, those who oppose him will be destroyed. They bring him out in the open. They put the crown on his head. They anoint him king. And they cry aloud, long live the king. And then in verse 12. When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she went to the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance. 
And the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets and the singers with their musical instruments leading in the celebration. And Athaliah tore clothes and cried, treason, treason. Now, if ever there was a line of irony in the Bible, that is it. (laughs) Then Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains who were set over the army saying to them, Bring her out between the ranks. And anyone, watch this, anyone who follows her is to be put to death with the sword. For the priest said, do not put her to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her. And she went into the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house. And they put her to death. Listen to me. When the king was revealed, you were either with the house of David, God's rightful king, Or you were against him. And if you were against him, you received the punishment of the one you followed. Because not only was Athaliah to be put to death, everyone who follows Athaliah is to be put to death as well. Because she was the one who rebelled against God. She was the one who rebelled against heaven's king. She was the one who made heaven laugh that day because God looks down at the plans of man and he laughs at the scoffers and he laughs at their evil plans because he knows he will bring them to naught. And here's an example of that in this passage. You see, when the king's revealed, there is no middle ground. You are either with him or you are against him. I think of how difficult it must have been To be faithful for six years for the people of Judah. It appeared that darkness had triumphed over light. That good had triumphed over evil. That Satan had triumphed over God. And for six years the hope of God's people was put to the test. And although they did not know what was going on. All their doubts and fears and disappointments were erased. When they saw the king. But you know the sad story with Joash? Joash wasn't the Messiah. (laughs) Joash wasn't the promised son of David. In fact, you read the Old Testament and the end of the line for David's physical seed does not end so well. It ends with the last king being putting fetters and chains and his eyes plucked out and him carried away into Babylonian captivity. It's a sad picture. It's a, it's a sad reminder of what rebellion against God is. And furthermore, it's a sad reminder for the people of God that they follow their king. That what had happened to Zedekiah and David's final son who reigned also happened to David's people and the people of God because God would not just bless the people through a king that was obedient. He would also judge the people through a king who was disobedient. And so that hope and that longing in the Old Testament continues to grow for that one son of David who is going to arrive. Who is he? When the first book of the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, we read the genealogy Of Jesus Christ. The son. Of David. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 that he was descended from David according to the flesh. What was it that Bartimaeus said to Jesus as he walked by him? Have mercy on me, son of David. That Jesus Christ would come to this earth, not just as one of David's sons, but as the promised son of David. And do you know what happened to him? I cannot help but think of Judah. When I think of Judah and I think of those six years of darkness and gloom and sadness, I think of another group of people who were once around the true, the promised son of David in the New Testament. I think of Peter and James and John and the others who had walked with Jesus when he was upon the earth. They listened to him while he taught about the kingdom. They watched as the powers of the kingdom of God was put on display. And he healed the sick and raised the dead and performed miracles. And no doubt in their hearts they were giddy that this is the one. This is the king. In fact, they were so sure this was the king that they kind of got in a little tit for tat over who was going to sit on his right hand and who was going to sit on his left hand. And speaking of mothers, they even got their mother involved in the conversation. And she comes up to Jesus and she says, you know, if it's possible when you come into your kingdom, I'd, I'd like for James and John to sit on your right hand and the other one on your left hand. I, I, ain't, I ain't asking much. I just want one to be the secretary of defense and one to be the secretary of state when your kingdom is set up, if that's okay. And Jesus says, it's not for me to give, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared by my Father. But they are so sure this is the one that immediately after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, you're blessed because flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven, that Jesus then tells them, we're going to Jerusalem, guys. And when we go there, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be put on a Roman cross and he's going to die. But in three days, I'm going to be raised again. Do you know what Peter immediately does? He says, wait. Oh, no. That can't be true. That's not right. I've read the Old Testament. There's no category for the son of David, the Messiah, to die. No category. As a matter of fact, can you imagine Peter saying something along these lines? I've read 2 Samuel 7, and 2 Samuel 7 says that he is going to receive an eternal kingdom. Kings who die don't receive an eternal kingdom. There's no room for the cross in this. And Jesus, you read Mark's gospel, and Jesus tells them three specific times. We're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed on a cross, and I'm going to be raised again on the third and appointed morning. Three times he tells them that throughout Mark's gospel. You know how many of them got it? None of them. Because on that day, when David's greater son is hung on that cross, the king that they trusted, the king that they loved, and the king that they hoped for breathed his last breath and he died. And for three days, to them it looked as if the promise of God had failed. 
For three days, it looked as if God had promised more than he could deliver. For three days, it looked as if all of their hope had crushed to the ground and there was no hope at all. But they didn't know what we now know. That was they did not know what was going on behind the scenes. And although they had no idea what was going on, God knew exactly what was going on behind the scenes. Because listen, there's only one way that you can give to David a kingdom that is eternal. And that is either you have an eternal line of Davidites who rule and reign forever. Or you have one descendant of David who dies to defeat death and is raised to life forevermore to never die again. And the disciples never even thought of option B. (laughs) But think about that morning. That first glorious resurrection morning. Do you know what happened that morning? God did that morning what Jehoiada and those men did in 2 Chronicles 23. That morning, God revealed to the world who is his king. Think of that scene inside that dark, damp tomb. There is the lifeless body of the Son of God who three days earlier had been nailed to a cross. There his body lay on a slab. That third and appointed morning, God looks down from heaven and can't you almost hear him say to the Son, You are my Son! Today, I have begotten you. The Holy Spirit of God invades that Jerusalem tomb and touches and quickens the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Galilean leg begins to twitch on the right side and twitch on the left side. Those eyes that closed three days earlier at Calvary after he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. They opened up. Those lungs that had previously exerted, it is finished, and then he died. Start breathing again. And Jesus sits up in that tomb, takes off all of his death attire, folds it up nice and neatly, and places it on that slab, and he stands up. And as he stands up, the angel rolls away that stone. And the one who they packed in three days earlier comes walking out on his own power on that third and appointed morning. And as he walks out of that tomb, I hear the father look down and say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. A scepter of righteousness shall be the scepter of your kingdom. And on that third and appointed morning, God revealed to the entire world who his king is. Because the one who has gone out of sight for three days was revealed to be alive and alive forevermore. God fulfilled his promise. But you say, Brother Justin, what about us? What about us? That promise has been fulfilled. Well, God has also made you and me a promise as well. Because 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus, after teaching his disciples, and Jesus, after showing them him in the Old Testament, how they missed it, now they got it. (laughs) 
He's standing on at a mountain with his disciples and a cloud comes down. Now Luke doesn't tell us it happened this way, but I imagine he stepped on the cloud and says, heaven please. (laughs) And as that cloud begins to ascend up into glory, the Bible says that the apostles, they, they stretched, they gazed, literally. That is, they stretched their neck to see him until he disappeared because there goes their hope. There goes their Savior. There goes their Messiah. There he goes. And then the Bible says two men stood by them in white apparel and said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus that is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner. You and I have a glorious promise, brothers and sisters. And that is that one of these days, Jesus Christ will return. One of these days, the kingdom that was inaugurated with His first coming shall be consummated at His second coming. One of these days, a scoffing world and a a laughing society will behold him whom they pierced. And Jesus will return again. Are there dark days in between his ascension and his return? Yes. But listen to me. Do not lose hope. Don't let the despair and the discouragement of the present Block your mind from the hope that awaits you in the future. Paul says, for we are saved in this hope, but a hope that is not seen is is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for it? But if we hope for what we do not see, then do we with patience wait for it. And you know what will happen when Jesus is revealed from heaven? The same thing that happened here in 2 Chronicles. Those who trust in Him and believe in Him will rejoice. Those who do not will be judged. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that when Jesus Christ comes to be revealed from heaven, He will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and who obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be destroyed with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on that day when He comes to be glorified in His saints. You and I, the entire world, is waiting the unveiling of God's King. And when He comes, those who believe in Him and trust in Him and who have repented of their sin and trusted in Him alone for their salvation will rejoice. And those who have not will experience the wrath of Almighty God. Because the fact of the matter is this. You do not rebel against heaven's king. You do not commit treason against heaven's king and get away with it. His coming will be rejoicing for those who are ready. I've learned something in the past year at Lakeville. Heaven gets sweeter every day. The the thoughts of heaven and the thoughts of the second coming for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, it causes that hope to just well up even more in our hearts. Why? Because we know that when the King appears... 
Our doubts will turn to shouts. Our hurts to hallelujahs. Our pain to praise. Our questions will all disappear. Because when the king appears, we will be glad we trusted in him. Let's pray. Father, as I come to you today in Jesus' name, Lord, I thank you for your mercies. I thank you, Father, that you are faithful to your word. The Lord, even when it appears in our finite minds that your promises may fail, there is no danger in one promise of yours falling to the ground. The Father, you will be faithful. And God, it is that promise, it is your character, it is who you are that gives us hope in the midst of a chaotic world. For the hope of the gospel for us is to know that there will be a time when the Prince of Peace returns and he sets right all that is wrong in this world. Lord, we hope in that. We long for that. I pray for your people this morning, Lord, who may be in a time of darkness, disappointment. Guard our hearts from feeling that disappointment gives me the right to sin and to feed my flesh. God, I pray that you would help with doubt by reminding us that, Lord, if you have to raise your son from the dead to fulfill your promise, you will do it. You are faithful. And God, I pray that our hope will grow as we walk with you, as we live for you. Help us to be faithful and anticipate the day when our King will be revealed from heaven. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.